I'm not a comic book reader, but I'm a fan of comic book heroes. How many of you can identify with that? Um, One of the first movies I remember as a kid was the Michael Keaton Batman. How many of you remember that Batman? Uh, Jack Nicholson was the Joker. Uh, I still remember going to the movie theater with my sister and watching that movie. It was somewhere around my birthday when that came out. And I remember um, being there with her. Um, Over the last 15 years, there has been this cinematic wave of superhero movies that have come uh, to theaters, and they are the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. It started with um, Iron Man and and worked its way through the different superheroes like Thor and uh, Spider-Man and Captain America. I I personally like Captain America. I like his backstory and, and everything that went into that. Um, But even if you haven't seen these movies, you're likely familiar with the characters. You're likely familiar with the buzz that they created in the world that we live in. Without the merchandise, without the book sales, without all of the extras that go into it, from the first movie they released to the last one that they've released, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has grossed almost $23 billion dollars. That's with a B. That's insane. That, I've contributed a small fraction to that. Um, but yeah, these comic book characters are popular. It got me thinking about that in light of what we're talking about this morning. And, and the question was like, why? why? Why is the supernatural so popular? What makes them so popular? I mean, one of the things that I enjoy is seeing these characters seemingly do impossible things. They fly through the air, they exhibit super strength, they perform seemingly impossible tasks. And mere humans are fascinated by the supernatural. But reality tells us that the things that these characters are doing are impossible. So if you're a a kid... I'm sorry for bursting your bubble this morning, but they're impossible. And yet we, as mere humans, right, we're drawn to this. We're, 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 we're brought into this um, amazing, fictitious world because we see things that just blow our minds. Well, this morning, we're, we're going to be confronted with something similar and yet different. Our passage this morning calls us to consider the supernatural aspect of the Christian life. So we're drawn to the supernatural, and now this morning we're going to read about the supernatural. What is caused in us when we become a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? In a masterful way, Paul is building upon the foundation of the sacrifice that is required in the Christian life. We started in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when, when Paul is now shifting our focus to the everyday living of the Christian life. What does he begin with? Lay down your life as a living sacrifice. So if, if you want Jesus to make a difference in your life, if you're looking for help and guidance and how you should live, and if you truly believe that Jesus Christ does make a difference in your life and that he is in the process of, of changing you and working through you as he conforms you into his image, if you're looking for God 
to, um, to bless your life and you're looking for his fingerprints in your life, you begin by being a living sacrifice, by laying your life on the proverbial altar before God, all of you. And as, as you begin to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, you are then renewed through the reading of the word, the transformation of the word. You're not conformed by the world, but you're transformed through the renewing of your mind. And then over the last two weeks, we've been talking about as we lay down our lives on the altar as a living sacrifice, we then understand that God has gifted each one of us to be a part of his family, and he has gifted us to serve each other so that we can encourage the body, strengthen the body, and so that the body of Christ, the church, can be the body that God has marked it out to be. And over the last two weeks, we've been looking at this idea that God has gifted each one of you with gifts, spiritual gifts. He has deposited in you the ability to serve each other in a way that gives God honor and glory. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, then you are gifted by God and you are called. You are called to use those gifts for his glory. And if you were with us over the last few weeks, I I hope you've been challenged in your walk with the Lord. And I hope you're beginning to explore what your gifts are. We talked about what that looks like. Now, as we build off of that, Paul moves us into a super practical section of how we should be living. So we've dedicated our lives We understand we have gifts, and now we know how we are to live. Do you see the building blocks? It begins with a life sacrificed before God. I'll say it this way. If you cannot present your body as a living sacrifice, you will not be able to do anything that Paul is saying here from this point forward. This is where it starts. And this is where it begins. And when I think about offering my life as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God, I need to understand some things about first what God has done for me. And I think that's what we all need to wrestle with, right? If I'm going to commit my life to God, I need to understand what has God done for me? Because I think that's what we wrestle with from time to time. How much of, God, how much of me does God want? He wants all of us. And then we think, I don't know if I can give everything to him. But then we need to realize how much of him did he give to us? A hundred percent. Did Jesus hold anything back when he came to the earth? Absolutely not. His life with every step brought him to the cross for your redemption. He shed his blood. He died your death. He suffered our punishment. He bore God's wrath so that we could be set free. Jesus didn't hold anything back. And so why would we hold anything back from him? I mean, when you think about it, the word of God is going to challenge us. And we're going to talk about some challenging things this morning in practical living. But in these challenges, God gives the grace and the power to live. 
and to live well. And any crisis of faith that we have in, in being able to appropriate these things in our lives, we need to understand that God is more than willing to meet us where we are to give us what we need to get where he wants us to go if we trust him for it. But we need to have the faith to trust him for it. This is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life, these verses and as we move forward. A dedicated life using their spiritual gifts is called to live supernaturally. So in some ways, you can be a superhero. Maybe they'll make a movie about you. I don't know. But Romans 12, 9 through 21 reveals what the supernatural life looks like. It does so in two major ways. Our verses this morning, verses 9 through 13, focus on supernatural living with those in the church. How do we live supernaturally within the confines of the body of Christ? Not just the walls of the church, but in relation to each other in the church. And then verses 14 through 21 focus on supernatural living with those who are outside the church. How do we live as God's people in a world that is desperately broken? And we're going to talk about that next week, Lord willing. In both respects, God is calling his people to live in a radical way. To live for Jesus is to live radically. It really is. You should look and act and think and live different as a follower of Jesus Christ. If people that do not know Jesus were to look at your life and they were to compare it to a life that isn't following Jesus, they should be able to look at your life compared to that life and say, yep, I see difference. I see something of a different quality. They might not know exactly what it is, but they see that it's different. Now, before we look at the specifics of a supernatural life within the walls or confines or the the community of the saints, a thought occurred to me as I was preparing and I just want to take a minute and, and kind of maybe address the elephant in the room because we're going to read these things and be like, oh, maybe you, you've never thought about it in the terms like this, but some thoughts came to my mind as I was looking at this passage and they're not new thoughts and they're not the only thoughts that I've had as I only read Romans 12. I, I see it in other places, but our section this morning focuses on how we are to relate to each other. And the question we sometimes wrestle with in the church is, why do we need to be told how to relate to each other? We're in the church. We all love Jesus. We're on the same side. We're a part of God's family. We're all headed to the same destination. We're going to spend forever with each other. And the question that was in my mind is, why then does God need to tell us how to live with each other? It seems like a strange thing. I mean, aren't we all in this together? And yet, sadly, though, many of us carry scars and wounds from experiences with people in the church. And it reminds us that being a part of the church hasn't always been a pleasant experience. Listen, although we are saved, we still have an old nature. And that's why you start in Romans 1 before you get to Romans 12. 
because it's in the text of Romans especially, but in other places you come to the understanding that we are sinful. And even though we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 7, there is still a war waging on inside of us. The old nature, the old man, and the new nature given by the Spirit as we are conformed to the image of Jesus. Basically, what I'm saying is, even as a Christian, we're not perfect. We're fallen still. And we show that fallenness, sadly, tragically. We still sin, and we often sin towards each other. And as a result, we hurt each other. I'd like to say, hopefully, accidentally. But sin isn't an accident. Sin is a willful decision. It's not a mistake. It's a willful act of rebellion. Unfortunately, the body of Christ has been weakened due to harmful actions towards each other. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of churches devouring each other over differences. I I could go into very specific details, but I don't want to. Unfortunately, the body of Christ is not as strong as it ought to be. Now, I wish I could say we are the one church that has gotten it right all the time. I wish I could say that. But you don't want me to lie to you. But here's the thing, and this is where God's word helps us. What I would hope is that when we get it wrong, and we're going to get it wrong, is that we take care of it. That we do what is necessary according to what God has provided to take care of our sin in relation to each other or when we are sinned against. So let me just back up real quick. Um, One of the things that I've realized as a pastor is sometimes we have people that come and visit and then eventually belong to our church or a church that I've pastored in the past. And I get to know these folks and they're fine folks. They love Jesus and you know, they, they want to serve the Lord and they, they, they want to be under the ministry of the word. And yet when they're a part of the body, you can see that kind of like standoffishness, that, that hesitancy, that, hey, I'll be here, but I'm not ready to, to be here kind of thing. You know, it's that arm's length kind of thing. And that's sometimes due to the past wounds that they've carried and brought in. And, and it affects your next step in community. And I would say, if that is you this morning, if there is any kind of hesitancy, I'm just going to ask that through the Holy Spirit, that you ask God to give you the help to either forgive past sin or confess past sin. Confession and forgiveness is a wonderful gift that God gives us. 
because it brings restoration. Confessing our sin to each other, to each other. Yes, we need to confess it to God, but if we've hurt someone, we need to confess it to the person that we've hurt. And if we have been hurt and wounded, to forgive, to follow the example of Jesus, to forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven us, and to be reconciled. The result is, and, and like here's the thing, our minds cannot comprehend this. But I've seen it time and time again in my own life and in the life of God's people. We think that once a mistake is made, that's it. All bets are off. And we think we're going to be weaker as a result of that one mistake. Here is what I know. God's people that trust God's word for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for all of the good gifts that God gives through this wonderful process of following the example of Jesus. God's people that go through those valleys and trust God for it are stronger on the other side than they were before it. I, I, I've seen it. I've seen it in my own life. It's a beautiful thing. The problem is we struggle with it because we think that takes a lot of faith. It does. But the great thing is God is more than gracious to meet, we, meet us where we are. And because of our weaknesses, God in his kindness teaches us how we ought to live. How we ought to live. This is why you have a Romans 12 and following. This is why you have an Ephesians 4 and following. This is why you have a Colossians 2 and 3, especially chapter 3 and following. This is why in God's Word, like in the Sermon on the Mount or in other places in the New Testament, you have these very detailed explanations of how God's people ought to live. It's not that God thinks that once we are saved, we have a master class in being perfect. We're not. It's that by His grace, He says, let me help you and show you how the changed life truly lives because we need those examples. Now, this morning in Romans 12, we're looking at five short verses. And just in the five short verses we're going to look at this morning, there are 13 exhortations of how we ought to live. 13 very specific things of how we should relate to each other and the body of Christ. Now, each one of these 13 could serve as its own sermon. I could probably spend 13 weeks just on each one of these things. I'm not. I'm going to try to get through them all. And some of you are thinking, there's no way you're getting through them all. But we're going to try our best. And as we take this kind of like big picture, super, super high view of these things and what they mean, I'm going to ask you already, and we're going to look at it again on the other end, that if there's any of these 13 things that God is speaking to you about, and you want to dig a little deeper and go a little harder through God's word through it, that if you need help with that, come see me and we will dig a little deeper and we'll begin to explore some of these things. But what each one of these 13 things does is deals with the foundation of effective living for Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a superhero, if you're going to live supernaturally, to live the way that God wants you to live, then you need to start living the way that Paul explains. So let's read these verses. 
Romans chapter 12, I'm going to be reading verses 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributed to the, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. So if you want to know what supernatural, supernatural living looks like, this is what it looks like. If, this, if you're trying to figure out, how do I live with each other in the body of Christ. This is how you do it. Now, we need to make a clear distinction here. We talked about spiritual gifts over the last two weeks. These things may have an effect in a spiritual gift, but even if you don't have that spiritual gift, like the gift of hospitality, Paul is not talking about showing, or when, when he says in verse 13 to practice hospitality, that that's only for those who have the spiritual gift. It's for all of us. Now, some of you are gifted by God to be used by God within the body of Christ to strengthen each other through being hospitable. But some of you aren't. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to practice hospitality. That means as you trust God for it, God may be stretching you a little more than what your, um, what your passions, what your gifts truly are. And so it begins in verse 9 with love. It all begins with love. It's like the Beatles song, all you need is love. We talked about that last week as we closed up our time in spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about spiritual gifts. And then Paul moves us to 1 Corinthians 13. That if you have all of the gifts and yet you do not have love, you're a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. You're just spinning your wheels. That love is of primary importance in the Christian life. And you might think, well, duh, I get it. God, for God so loved the world. But if we were to really look at our lives and look at how we live and, and think about what we think about and, and consider our attitudes and our actions, how much can we say that we truly love all the time? That's a sobering question to ask ourselves. But when you trace it throughout the scriptures, we see that God's desire is that we have love for him. And out of that love for him, we love each other. Way back into the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, we read, You shall not take vengeance. We're going to talk about that later in Romans 13. So just hold your breath for that one. Uh, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You know what God knows about us? He's really good at knowing this about us. We're really good at loving ourselves. We are. What he says is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, it is not a terrible thing to love yourself. It's not. It's a terrible thing to only love yourself. God knows. 
Jesus said himself in, in Matthew 22. And I, I love the, the, questions, the question that is posed to him and I love his response. Uh, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? You know, there's 613 of them. And they're trying to figure out, okay, what is the most important commandment out of those 613 commands in the Old Testament? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second, right? So you have the greatest. The second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, Leviticus 19.18. Jesus says out of all the commands in the Old Testament, the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all that you are. And the second command is to love your neighbor. On these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. On those two commands, everything else that is written speaks to those things. To love God and to love your neighbor. But the thing is, when we think about love, when we talk about love, we need to understand that our love must be sincere. And John talks about this in 1 John chapter 4, and I forgot to put these verses in. Let me read 1 John chapter 4. Verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And so John was there with Jesus when he said the words that we read in Matthew 22. John understood. John not only heard the words from Jesus, but he saw the words of Jesus lived out. And now as John is writing much later in his life to a group of believers um, that never saw Jesus, but they had come to faith in Jesus. He writes this letter, this first John is called the love letter of God for God's people. And he writes this letter referring to God's love again and again and again. And very basically what John says is if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother and, you, and, and, and let's just be clear. Anything that isn't love is hate. Like there's no middle ground. There's no ambiguity. You either love the brethren that are in Christ or you don't. And John says that you can't say that you love God if you hate your brother. Because how can you say that you love the invisible God if you hate the visible manifestation of who he is in the body of Christ? And so when you think about love in those terms, when Paul writes in Romans 12, let love be without hypocrisy, you begin to see the light shining into what he's really saying. Love without hypocrisy. We all have heard the word hypocrisy before, right? 
You've heard people say it about the church, right? Well, I'm not going to church. That, the churches are full of hypocrites. Those who exhibit hypocrisy. Well, in the first century world, a hypocrite was a play actor. A hypocrite referred to someone that was acting in a play and they wore a mask. They were trying to be someone that they truly weren't. That word, the etymology of that word, followed us through history to our English language, where now we refer to anyone that says one thing and lives another way as a hypocrite, as a play actor, as putting on a mask. They're not truly who they say they are. Paul says, love without a mask. Paul is challenging us to make sure our love is sincere. And it doesn't pretend to care when it doesn't. Like there are times it's easier to love than other times, right? Yes, there is. And then there are times when the demands of love we require a whole lot than we might be willing to give in that moment. Love requires a lot. In fact, we talked about this last week. But again, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the characteristic of love. That takes a lot. It really does. But Paul adds two clarifiers to this kind of love, to love without hypocrisy. He says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That's what love looks like. To abhor what, what is evil. To abhor means to hate. It means that in our love for one another, we seek the highest good and hate the things that would bring hindrance to that kind of love in the relationship that we have with each other. It also means that in community life, we are a people that agree with God who hates what he hates. And you better believe that God hates. He does. He hates sin. He hates all things that go against his holiness. And as God's people, we need to hate evil as God hates evil. And at the root of this word means that it, we find it despicable. Like, but here's the thing, living in a fallen world, when Jesus says, be in the world, but not of the world, isn't it way super easy to just get sucked in to what the world believes and what the world likes? Do you ever find yourself saying, oh my gosh. Like, if you were able to have an out-of-body experience and watch your life for, for a microcosm of time thing, why did I watch what I watched? Why did I listen to what I listened to? Why did I talk about what I talked about? Why do I find myself in these spots and moments when I know I was doing and saying and thinking things that were not pleasing to God? I mean, that's where the challenge is. But supernatural, supernatural living means that we hate what God hates. 
It's the kind of thing that Paul says in Philippians 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Don't dwell on the things that the world dwells on. Don't follow the example of the world that's, you know, the the wide road heading to destruction. But as you walk on that narrow road where there's not a lot of people on the road heading towards the the way of life, you're going to realize that there are things that are much better for us to think about than the things that we often think about. And to love the way that God wants us to love towards each other means that we hate the things that God hates and we seek the things that will build up each other in the body of Christ. We should be constantly assessing what we allow and permit in our lives. Those things that God calls evil should not be a part of who we are as a follower of Christ. But rather than avoiding evil things alone, and I love this about God, he's not just this buzzkill kind of joy kill kind of God who wants to make life miserable for all of us and we think, oh, to be a follower of Jesus, I can't have any fun. We abhor, we hate the things that are evil. But what does Paul says? We cling to what is good. The word cling means to be glued to. We cling to what is good. The word cling means that we're going to hold on to, no matter what, to the things that are of God's heart. Now, what are some of those things? I tried to write some of the list, but I I cannot totally, I, I cannot come up with a comprehensive list. But very quickly, we love righteousness, justice, mercy, grace. We love discipleship. We love his word. We love strengthening each other. We love to pray. We love to serve each other. The list goes on and on. We cling to what is good. Because we know what is good is of him. And what is of him lasts forever and is for our benefit. So church, the first thing is we love without hypocrisy. The second thing is we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Devoted is a word only used here in the New Testament. It doesn't have a lot of usage in the scriptures, but we see that it is used outside of the New Testament uh, scriptures. It's used in the, the Greek world as they wrote. And here in literature, it refers to the tender affections that exist in family life. So to be devoted refers to the tender affections of, being, uh, of belonging to a family. And so if you're in a family today and you know what it's like to be cared for and loved in, in that way, it's a different kind of love than what we experience often in the world around us. But here, Paul borrows that term and he says, as we are all a part of God's family, even though we have a different last name, we still belong to the family of God and we are to be devoted to each other. It's a commitment to each other because we are in this together. We're not just mere acquaintances. We're not just people that show up on a Sunday morning and say, hey, good to see you. I saw you last week and I hope to see you next week. And we all sing songs about Jesus and hear his word and think, all right, we're all in this together. And then we leave here and we don't see each other until the next week. And then it makes you wonder, are we really all in this together? You begin to see what Paul is saying here? That Christianity, the Christian life, belonging to the church isn't just participation in attendance, but it's a life that is lived alongside of other people that love Jesus. We're devoted to each other because we're in the family. And Paul adds, we give preference to one another in honor 
You might want to underline that phrase. That's a hard phrase, right? Give preference to one another and honor. I mean, can we just admit it's a hard thing to do this? It really is. To esteem others higher than ourselves. It's a hard thing. Because the world we live in says otherwise. To put the needs of others ahead of our own is a hard thing. It's challenging. This really is a supernatural work. To get out of the way of ourselves so that we can put the needs of others ahead of our own. That takes a supernatural work. And while this seems difficult, don't we have a wonderful example? Please say yes. Thank you. Who's our example of selfless love? Our Savior. Anytime we're trying to figure out what it means to put the needs of others ahead of our own needs, may we only look to Jesus. To give of himself with thought of gaining nothing in return. Now we're invited to see this in our Lord's life as Paul uses it as an example to teach us of selflessness in Philippians 2. This is what Paul writes here. Therefore, if there's any encouragement of Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you want the example, look to Jesus. What did Jesus do? He is God. And he left heaven. And set aside. He didn't stop being God, but he set aside his deity to do what? To take on the limitation of flesh. To live amongst us. And he went to the cross. He was obedient to the will of his Father every step of the way to the point of death. Why? So that those who place their trust in him would be saved, could be saved. Now, the Revised Standard translates verse 10, giving preference to one another in honor, this way, outdo one, ano- outdo one another in showing honor. I like that translation. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think it does a good job of capturing what Paul is saying here. We should go out of our way to esteem others and make them feel important. We 
should go out of our way to esteem each other and to make them feel important in the body of Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. In light of what Paul is building on in Romans 12, it means that we realize that each person is valuable to the body of Christ. Each one of you. There's no one higher than another. But as we relate to each other in the body of Christ, I should be looking at you, and you should be looking at me, and we should be looking at each other as thinking as that person is more valuable than me. We need each other. We need to esteem each other. We need to give preference to one another and honor. And one of the ways that we can do this is give recognition and appreciation to those who are serving in the body of Christ. Like wind in our sails, a word of recognition goes a long way in someone's life. They're like golden apples, as Proverbs says. Now, I'd like to challenge you this week to share an encouraging word with someone here today who is serving the body of Christ. Parents, if your kid is not sitting next to you right now, you have a reason to share appreciation and thanksgiving for someone that is serving in the body of Christ. There are many ways that we can show appreciation and thanksgiving. But do it tangibly. Send a card. If you haven't picked up a pencil or pen in decades because of texting and email, it's a wonderful thing. It might hurt your hand for a little bit, but it's all right. Send a text if you have to. That's a wonderful thing. Or an email. Or stop by. Maybe give a heads up before you stop by. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not lagging behind in diligence. Paul knows that it is natural for us to slack off in our diligence. And he says, don't lag behind in diligence. Let me, let me say it this way. If you've served Jesus for any length of time in the church, doesn't it get weary sometimes? I'll be the first to admit it does. And you might think, you're our pastor. We pay you. You should never be weary. Well, it gets weary sometimes. Um, n- not lagging behind in diligence. Week after week, year after year, it can be tiresome. The key to not lagging is to be fervent of spirit. The word fervent can also be translated zeal. Zeal is the fire of God in your heart. It's what he puts in you. It's what burns for him. Theologian J.C. Ryle said this about zeal. 
Zeal in Christianity is a burning desire to, to please God, to do His will, to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. It is a desire which is not natural to men or women. It is a desire which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when they are converted to Christ. A desire which some believers, however, feel so much more strongly than others, that they alone deserve to be called zealous men and women. This desire is so strong when it really reigns in a person that it impels them to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny themselves anything, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend themselves and to be spent even to die, if only they can please Christ their Savior. A zealous person in Christianity then is preeminently a person of one thing. It is not enough to say that they're earnest, strong, uncompromising, meticulous, wholehearted, and fervent in spirit. No, zealous people see only one thing. They care for only one thing. They live for only one thing. They're swallowed up in one thing, and one thing is to please Almighty God. Be zealous of spirit. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Now, as we live and we live with focus, how many of you have come to realize that this life is full of distractions? Some of you have even struggled with some of those this morning, living with distractions. What's on your mind? What's on your heart? what you're worrying about, what you're thinking about. Pitfalls, discouragements. There is so much around us that causes us to lose focus on the main thing, that of Christ and his church, the sole group that God will use to build his eternal kingdom. So what does Paul say? We rejoice in hope. The question that we need to settle right now is, what is hope? What is hope? Let me ask it this way. We sang it this morning. Who is our hope? Who is hope? Jesus. Because of Jesus, is there really anything that can happen in our lives that will affect our future? Okay, let's remind ourselves of that in Romans 8 again. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Our hope is sure because our Savior is alive. We rejoice in hope. We rejoice in our Savior. Praising God in the midst of the storm, remembering His promises, holding desperately on to what we know to be true, that He will never let us go, that He will never forsake us, causes us to persevere in tribulation. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Listen, trouble's going to come. 
And if you're a Christian, you know that trouble will come. If you're a young Christian and you don't realize that trouble is coming, spoiler alert, trouble is coming in your life. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Trouble's coming. Especially if you are a blood-bought child of God, Satan is coming after you. Trouble's coming. Sin and darkness is the world that we live in. Trouble is coming. Being a Christian doesn't mean we escape the trouble. Being a Christian means that God makes a sense and gives us purpose in the midst of the trouble. And we see that in James chapter 1, and we saw that in Romans 8, 28, that God is faithful for his children, that in the midst of of trials and persecutions and tribulations and all the trouble that visits upon us, that God will meet us where we are and use it for his glory. He is inviting us to trust him and using that day of trouble to give us a greater understanding of who he is as he makes us more like his son. Trials are a necessary part of the Christian life. They're going to happen. And we live in this escape culture where if, if there's anything that is terrible or even a little bit trouble, what do we do? We run from it. And God says, no, press into it. Watch. And as you press into it, more importantly, press into Him because He's the one that's working persevere in tribulation, be devoted in prayer. The word devoted here in verse 12 means to persist or continue. It's the call of Philippians 4. Have you noticed that I've quoted a lot from Philippians this morning? Oh man, what a wonderful book. And compare, you know, you, you, you stack it up against what Paul says here. You see a lot of parallels. It's the same guy that wrote it. I mean, he's not writing any brand new material, right? He knows what it means to follow Christ. And he says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, if we just stop there, that would still be enough. But then you have verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts in your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, how many of us want to know in the midst of our persecutions, of our anxious moments, of our trials, of our suffering, that when we pray, God will meet us and help us? How many of you want to know that this morning? Oh man, it's a beautiful thing. That as the waves are beating against us, the peace of God is surpassing all comprehension in our lives. It's washing over us. Prayer is our greatest resource whenever we feel stress and strain. Finally, in verse 13, contributing to the saints, the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Here, Paul calls us out of ourselves. As we are called to supernatural living with each other, he calls us out of ourselves. True devotion to each other should cause us to contribute or share with one another. Practicing hospitality. We should be looking for ways to reach out to others. Now, hospitality is the call of God to open what is most valuable to you to those who are around you. It's the ability to open your homes when you are then opening your lives. 
Because our homes are our most vulnerable places. That's where we are us. And Paul says, practice hospitality. To love those who love Jesus like Jesus loved them and to follow his example. It's the ability to take care of those who belong to Jesus because they belong to the family with you. Listen, living this way will cost you. It will. And it's not just money. It'll cost you your time. It'll cost you maybe what your plans were for the day. It'll cost you. But your investment in someone's life could speak to their heart in a way that you never thought was possible. It's being more than a friendly person. It's providing a platform to go deeper. It's more than a smile and say, hi. It means, hey, you want to come over? Just share life together? Sit around a table of food? I mean, Jesus ate a lot in the Gospels. Why? Because the table was a good place for fellowship. It's where we get to be us. So can I encourage you, for as friendly as we are as a church, and I hear that time and time again, and that that warms my heart. We're a friendly church. But can I encourage you to think about ways that you can open up your life to a person who worships with you? A little bit. You know, baby steps, right? Maybe you feel like your home isn't big enough. Okay. Meet somewhere else. You want to meet here? Let us know. We'll give you the space to do it. Maybe you feel like I'm not a very good cook. Okay. There's a slew of restaurants around. I mean, they're all around. Invite someone to lunch after worship. Might be today. Might be next week. The big thing that Paul is driving us to consider is to spend our lives for the sake of others. Now, these are hard. They're really hard. And apart from the Spirit living inside of us, we will not be able to do it. For us to live this way, we truly need to live supernaturally. And if we do, we will be a superhero for God. Our relationships will be deeper. Our faith will grow. Our church will be stronger. And most importantly, God will be glorified. Church, there's a lot for us to consider this morning. And my challenge for you today, and I said this earlier, is that this week... Pick one area of the 13 things that we talked about. Pick one area that we looked at that you know needs work and ask God for help. And as you ask God for help, watch for how he answers that prayer. Because I guarantee as you pray and ask God for help, he's going to put people in your life to exercise that attribute of supernatural living. And remember, everything you need to do for him needs to be done in love. Let's pray.